Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, uh, for our little quiz today, mad as a... Mm, I'm going to say hatter. No, 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 no. Mad as a listener of the Double Loop Podcast without also contributing through patreon.com slash Double Loop Podcast. Ah, good one. Good one. I should have known that. Uh, oh, I, have, yeah. I have one for you. All right, go ahead. Wham, bam. Thank you, ma'am. Well, sort of. It so That's just incomplete. It's thank you, ma'am or sir, for your contribution to the Double Loop Podcast through Patreon. David Bowie wrote that for us. He was actually a big fan of the show. Oh, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, absolutely. Right before he passed away a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, at first, I thought you were thinking, uh, referring specifically to, thank you, ma'am, as in M-A-M, making a murderer, Ooh. which has been our focus for the past few weeks. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was totally my other intent. Okay, good, good. All right, well, uh, this week, we want to send out some thank yous to some recent uh, contributors to the Double Loop Podcast. So big thank you to Thomas for your contribution, uh, joining in as a subscriber, as a patron of the podcast, and also to Irv. Thank you, Irv, for also sending in your contribution. Yeah, thanks, uh, guys. Uh, we really appreciate that. In fact, Eric, um, I was traveling this week. I was in Canada. Uh, oh, Cana- oh, yeah, eh? Canadia, yeah, eh? They, they are the nicest people. They are so great. <laughs> and they're they're wonderful students. Uh, not to diss my, my U.S. students, but they they at least politely hide when they're on their phones and they're texting. Oh. And <laughs> American students generally don't. They're like, yeah, I'm on my phone. What are you going to do about it? Uh, it's they're just they're just such polite people, and I do I do love listening to their accent, eh? And they're just such the such the nicest people. And anyway, they um. Uh, a lot of a lot of listeners of the show uh, were in the class. It was really nice hearing about the impact that we're having in countries like Canada and how they're using it when they're traveling on the road or they're using it as part of their their training. And it, it, it really it, it's it's very heartwarming to to hear that. And what I I was thinking is that we should probably try to reach out to some more Canadian guests. We had Dell on. I guess it was a very popular episode in the past. Well, Della and Brian Wilkinson. Dalrymple a few years ago. Brian Dalrymple, right. But we should maybe uh, see if we can't think of some Canadian topics, too, and some, some cases to cover, because I think Americans would be interested in their Daubert a law and their their th- which are very similar to the the U.S. and I'm sure Australians and other other folks would be interested. But we we should maybe look at having a Canadian week or something and get, dig in a little bit to some Canadian topics. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I I don't think I mentioned this to you, but uh, and actually, yeah, a couple of months ago when I was up at that Jamalto conference, uh, I had a chance to talk to Mr. Hockey, Dan Daniel Hockey. Yeah, with RCMP, uh, he was actually at that conference as well, and we got to talking a little bit about things. And I, I somewhat rudely interrupted De- Della at the time during that interview to to ask if, for real, you, they had with RCMP an expert named Hockey. And anyway, uh, no, uh, er- Eric, that came up in class. 
yeah th- that comment and that <laughs> that thing that actually did come up one of the students said we really do know and we and, and we should we should get daniel on the show that's that's where that's where we should oh go. yeah, he, yeah. He, he he's he's very knowledgeable and uh um no he would be a great guest so that'd be great uh can't wait yeah, I mean, um, we are we are going to have uh, hopefully fairly soon here a couple of episodes on statistics and some models and a couple of other things where we'll have yes. a couple of interviews coming up. So that we'll we'll have to look into that. But anyway, I just wanted to share what a what a great experience it was and a lot of Canadian listeners and we really do appreciate their support, their patronage through Patreon and, and just generally. Uh, I, I've been getting emails and talking to people who are just discovering the Double Loop podcast, and uh, it, it's, it's fun. Uh, some of them are listening to some older episodes, so every now and then I'll get these texts or these emails <laughs> from a hundred episodes ago saying, you guys said blah, 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 and that was either really good or I disagree or, well, you know, it's, it's – and I just have to go, I have – Thank, thank you for your comment, <laughs> sir or ma'am. Uh, I don't remember that episode. That was several years ago. I hardly can remember what I said last week versus what I said a couple of years ago. But and then you'll enter into the conversation of, no, oh, okay, we should revisit that topic. But it, it is it is really nice that people are finding the archives and the old episodes and new listeners all the time. Yeah, absolutely. We we recently we've. Uh... Between the episodes we've done here recently on uh, the staircase and on making a murderer, we really have exploded uh, in uh, in popularity. We've gotten quite a few new listeners, so so greetings to all of those new listeners. Thank you so much for uh, for subscribing, for listening to uh, to our little podcast, and um, you know definitely will encourage all those new listeners to send us in questions or suggestions or you know any other kind of interaction you guys want to have with us so uh it's been it's been great we've been interacting with a lot of people through reddit and facebook and uh like you said you know at at uh, at training up there in canada but uh, all these interactions they've been out they've been well they've been a, a, a range from very positive and interesting and great discussions to uh, entertaining. Well, maybe that's a that's a polite way of putting it is entertaining. Entertaining, yes, very entertaining. <laughs> now, well, I mean, it's great. I mean, people have strong opinions about stuff, and and when we tread Ooh. into their little domain of making a murder, the these junior detectives are are all over us. How how dare we have opinions on forensic science? <laughs> Yes, yes, and well, actually, that's kind of the point of this uh, this episode. I, I have through some some um, dedicated time and hours uh, going through and interacting with a, a lot of, especially Reddit posters. Uh, again, R E D D I T for those non internet people out there. Uh, that is the website where different groups come together to debate things, to talk about things, to just post strange things. And uh, so I've interacted with quite a few people over the past few weeks, especially regarding the Making a Murder episode. And uh, Glenn and I even did a, a, a thing called AMA, Ask Me Anything, also known as I-A-M-I-A, I'm a, which is 
similar where you just kind of say, hey, I'm a forensic scientist, and here you can send me questions about uh, this topic. So with that, uh, I've, I've kind of curated out some questions, and I'm going to take on the role of internet keyboard captain and uh, type in some answers to you, Glenn, and uh, let you take on the role of, of expert expert forensic scientist and try to answer some of these questions um so i i see but i fully expect you to jump in too well yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll i'll uh i'll jump in as well um and uh you know so what we can kind of delve into uh some of these things and and you know again revisit or add in to some of our previous conversations about making a murderer uh but uh but well Anyway, for those of you who haven't been on Reddit and seen us try to answer a bunch of these questions that have been coming at us through that uh, that portal, uh, here are some of the questions that have been coming at us. So, Glenn, you ready? I am. All right. Glenn, remember the, the, the blood stain near the ignition in the RAV4? I do. All right, Glenn, so I'm uh, currently sharing uh, my screen here with you and, and showing you uh, a photo of the blood stain that was left near the ignition in the RAV4, yes? Yes, it looks like a Slytherin snake from House Slytherin. <laughs> so uh, here's my question for you. The shape of that stain near the ignition seems to match up exactly to the shape of the cut on Stephen Avery's finger, which you can now see on my screen, right? Uh, okay. Yeah, I keep going. No, no. So that right. So that's that's obviously proof that he left that blood stain because the shape of the stain on the dash matches exactly to the shape of the cut on his. Uh, what would that be? That would be number three finger. Oh my. Well, okay. So I guess my my polite response would be when blood of course is shedding from a particular wound, you know, it comes out in these droplets from a particular area and that uh it can pool and it can be it can have cohesive properties. So often it will simply through gravity pool up and then run down the side of the finger in a gravity motion. If it was wet at the time, that would be one, and, and struck it, and there were no drops, all it would leave is just a contact stain. Obviously, one, one a, a true forensic scientist, I, I'm looking at it again, still looks like the Slytherin snake. Uh, it would, <laughs> so I, I, it's probably Voldemort that left it behind, using that logic, as opposed to the shape of Stephen Avery's wound. All right, so uh, related but follow-up question. Wait, wait, wait. Hashtag Voldemort killed her. Uh, or or is she really dead? We'll, we'll get to that later. Uh-oh. Oh, boy. Um, okay, so now you can see, uh, sharing my screen, uh, another uh, image that you can find easily online. Uh, you can see the stain uh, hey, on... I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Uh, just thinking about a little bit about that, you know, this idea of being able to look at a contact stain and determine the shape 
and therefore the or and the origin of the stain. This is it, it actually is pro- problematic, and I think we will hear about this again quite soon or in the future, when we are able to get Bart Epstein on again to talk about the Sam Shepard case. Oh, okay. One of the the key things that led to Sam Shepard's conviction and has probably been false or terrible or misleading or inappropriate evidence in a lot of different bloodstain pattern cases is where the witness trained in bloodstain pattern analysis or limited training in bloodstain pattern analysis or in the Sam Shepard case, no training, (laughs) opines that a particular bloodstain pattern looks like it came from this thing. And I've seen it where, you know, you've got the four streaks on the wall moving down that look like they're fingertips or you've got the outline of a hand. I mean, those I'm a little more... You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little more understanding with, but it's when you have these very vague patterns that people will say, oh, it looks like the outline of a screwdriver, or it looks like the outline of a particular item, or it looks like the outline of Stephen Avery's scars. I mean, or a blowpoke. Or a blow, oh, or a blowpoke. Well, there was never a contact stain in, in no, the. No, no, but, but, uh, Deaver concluded that the, the, the wound on her scalp looked like the blowpoke. Oh, I, I see. The, I mean, well, even still, that's actually different because you're that's a that's, true. that's a physical that's true. wound in flesh, and and sometimes, I mean, that's not my area, but you can often tell blunt versus sharp and such. It's just when you get into contact stains, where a bloody object makes contact with a surface and leaves this stain pattern, you'd be surprised how often junior or inexperienced BPA <sighs> experts are or. or novices are willing to look at a pattern and say it must have come from a particular shape and that's actually exactly what we have here so i guess listeners pay attention when we get when we come back to the sam shepherd case that is actually a key sad element of that case uh, absolutely I, I i'm totally looking forward to it and uh after we wrap up some of our planned episodes with the Night Stalker, our Richard Ramirez, and some more interviews looking into statistics and probability models related to fingerprints. Uh, I hope we can move into that Sam Shepard case and I can meet up with uh, Bart Epstein because you were saying he's down here now in Arizona now at uh, this time of he year, is. right? Yeah, he's in Tucson. Right. Perfect, perfect. So, yeah, definitely looking forward to that. But, uh, again, getting back to... I'm making a murderer here. A related question. If you look again now on, on my shared screen, if you look at the shape of that stain near the ignition, it looks exactly like a Q-tip swab, right? (laughs) Meaning that the blood stain must have come from, uh, the police planting evidence and from a Q-tip and not from Stephen Avery, right? Uh-huh. Right. Well, in in fact, it does. I mean, it does look like that shape. I mean, it it's got the dark shadow and outline of a long, thin stain, and then sort of bulbous, rounded end that looks like the uh, a Q-tip. So it certainly does look like that. Yes, but which means he's innocent, right? Which means he's innocent because that blood was planted. Right. So again. Uh, yeah, interpreting a contact stain in that manner would not be appropriate and, and not founded in the science of BPA. And why not? Why not, Glenn? Why, why can't you 
Look at the shape of a stain. Here you can see now another example of the stain in relationship to the outer top crease underneath the pinky finger of a right hand uh, in relation to the stain uh, of someone else saying, hey, here, it looks like this part of the palm. Why, why can't you reach these kind of conclusions with blood stain pattern analysis? Right. So the basic premise is, is exactly the same here, That, and it comes down to um, activity-level propositions. Is it possible that that pattern was created by a Q-tip? Yes. But is it also possible that pattern was created by something else? So if you're going to make a statement about the likelihood of it being created by a certain mechanism, then you have to be able to consider multiple options. Even if it does look like a Q-tip, okay, so what's essentially, effectively, what's the probability to observe the stain shape if it came from a Q-tip as it is? Versus what is the probability to observe that stain shape if it came from something else? If we have lots of data on the something else, then we might be able to make a statement that 10 times or 100 times or 1,000 times more likely to appear as it does if it did in fact come from a Q-tip versus some other object. But we have to consider the likelihood of the evidence under some other object conditions. And that's, that is what the listeners are not doing. And that is... Not surprisingly that they're not doing that. I shouldn't say listeners, but the, the Reddit folks, the non-forensic scientists. It is Forensic Science 101. It is at the heart of forensic science. It is at the heart of forensic evidence interpretation. Which is that it could be one, it could be the other. But from the amount of detail present in this stain. And our lack of data. Right. That the likelihood that it is a Q-tip versus a palm or the finger cut versus a Q-tip, the, the likelihood isn't extremely greater for one versus the other for you to reach any kind of meaningful conclusion that it definitely came or extremely more likely came from one versus the other. There's just not enough data to to tell of... Well, yeah, maybe it came from that or maybe it came from that. I just don't know. Right. That's exactly it. We lack the data to be able to say anything. Just looking at a stain shape, you can't exclude that possibility, but you also can't say that it, it definitively proves it. That's that's what's missing from their junior analysis of the evidence. All right. All right. So continuing on with the blood in the car... The fact that there was no blood on the steering wheel, the gear shift, the door handles, all four door handles inside and out of both front doors means that all the blood was planted, right? Hmm. Right. So this that's that's it's a common thing and as as we discussed in previous episodes, it comes up in the in the, the series. And and it also assumes that there was only one event in the car, that the person got in the car, got in the, the front seat, and that was one time and one time only while they were bleeding or not bleeding. And it doesn't take into account the possibility of multiple entries into the car, different positions in the car, either you know, wrap, wrapping the wound or not wrapping the wound or gloves or not. There, there are so many scenarios that, again, just like the last thing, looking at that and opining and saying it definitively had to be this or that, that would be a mistake. More more appropriately would be to say that the lack of blood on all those surfaces could 
mean that the the blood was planted, but could also mean that it, it just was left in just the normal entry and exit of the source of the blood through that car. Sure. And and again, we don't know under what conditions that occurred. Was it in a rush? Was it in a hurry? Was it late at night? Was it dark? Why wouldn't he have cleaned it up or seen it? Or if he took such care to, we, we simply don't know the conditions. And maybe there was blood that was there that that was cleaned up and, and this was missed. I, who knows? We, we don't know. What we do know, his blood was found inside of a vehicle. So we're really left with he was in the vehicle at some time bleeding and he shouldn't have been. And therefore, that's suspicious and adds to the case. Does mean does not prove he killed her, but adds to the case of activity that goes towards weight that he may have done this action or it was planted. And I just simply don't, I just don't, I don't buy the, this was planted and that was planted and that was planted. We covered that in the previous episode is that when you, in order for this to have been a conspiracy, it would have been a massive conspiracy or coincidental conspiracies between the killers, the police, the, the, the searchers for the vehicle, the, the ex-boyfriend, the friends, and just, Four or five, six different people. And I'm just sorry. While I'm, if you're offering me two explanations, I will take the easier and the more obvious explanation of the two. The Occam's razor principle. There you go. All right. So somewhat related, the lack of fingerprints and especially the lack of bloody fingerprints means Mm. that all the blood was planted, right? Because if he was actively bleeding then he would have left blood and specifically bloody identifiable fingerprints on the steering wheel the gear shifter the door handles right well that that's an interesting one i'm gonna let you take i'm gonna bring it back to you on the the latent prints portion but having done research on bloody prints that was actually one of my first big gigantic research studies that's why I specifically wanted to, to phrase this like that uh, for you, because I know you've done the research on the bloody fingerprints. Thanks, man. One of the things that, that we did was we had uh, the, the the donor of bloody prints basically stick their hand in a vat of their own blood, putting as much blood possible on fingers. So we took mm. a bunch of their blood, put their hand in there, and then we waited to see how long it the blood it would take for the blood to dry on their hand at a reasonable uh, room temperature. And remember, this was October, Wisconsin, so it may have been a little bit cooler at the time, so it may have taken slightly longer. But one of the things that we saw at room temperature and normal temperature of skin and, and hand and fresh blood was that blood on the hand dried fairly quickly under four minutes. And so the most... Okay. It, any Anything beyond four minutes, if you had some blood on your hand, it would... It would take at most four minutes for it to dry, and you could not leave a bloody impression behind after that. Now, if your finger is actively bleeding and you're replenishing the source, right. well, then every, every time, of course, that new blood gets on the hand, you've got a new window of about four minutes before it dries. And that was maximum load. In other words, the maximum amount of blood you could possibly get. If you had less blood than sticking your head hand in a vat of blood, and you had maybe microliters or a milliliter as opposed to you know large amounts of blood, then it's going to dry even faster. The 
the drying time is definitely proportional to the volume of blood. And so four, min- four minutes is kind of tops under the, you know, the most, the most, you know, um, extreme condition of, of blood load on the hand. So a couple of drops of blood, sorry, done these experiments. They dry within a minute to two minutes tops, 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 which means you can touch a, a, a surface all day long with some dry blood on your hand, but you will not leave behind any bloody impression. Done the research. It's available through Journal of Forensic Identification. I think that was back in 2006. But what about those latents, Eric? Well, we like we've talked about in previous episodes, interior vehicles are generally very poor for leaving latent prints. You know, that might change a little bit if you're actively bleeding and can leave behind uh, blood stains where the blood is on that friction ridge skin. But like the, the blood stain near the ignition uh, in this case does not appear to have been left behind by friction ridge skin. Uh, would you agree with that? Correct. I would agree with that. Uh, whether it was from a Q-tip or from the side of a hand or some other mechanism, uh, it doesn't appear to have been from friction-ridge skin. Uh, the The idea that if you're actively bleeding and you are operating the vehicle, that you would every time leave friction-ridge detail behind that could be compared... That's just just not accurate. Right. Um, I would probably say it would be less than fifty percent. I'm not sure exactly without you know doing a whole lot more research, but definitely less less than fifty percent of the time would you be able to recover an identifiable latent print if there was still wet blood on your friction ridge skin as you're doing the normal things to get in and out of and drive a car. I, I'm 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 just thinking about actual. Date, you know, I'm trying to think about the data that we have from recovered stolen autos, how often fingerprints, oh, right, you know, were right. on those lifts. But I mean, it's, it's a somewhat biased sample set because if they don't see anything, they may not submit anything. But okay. I'm, <laughs> right. But I mean, I'm just thinking about uh, the data that we had, and I think it was somewhere around one in three cases, auto theft cases actually had a, vi- you know, viable identifiable latent prints something like that that was among the cases where the the processor of that vehicle saw some sort of something yeah good enough to even send you know lift and send into you and again it might change a little bit whether when you're dealing with bloody prints with someone actively bleeding versus just regular latent prints but even still the interior of a car is designed specifically to not record fingerprint data, to not record that friction-ridge skin impressions. That's a very good point. It's designed so that it does not get all gunked up with fingerprints and look icky. (laughs) (laughs) Again, with the technical terms. All right. Uh, Stephen Avery's trailer. Uh, Now, we, we talked quite a bit about how we're somewhat doubtful that uh, an assault occurred inside Stephen Avery Stephen Avery's trailer, correct? Uh, yes, I mean, th- just I think the way that we phrased it was there is no evidence to support that the assault occurred inside the trailer. And in fact, if the scenario as presented occurred according to Brendan Dassey's testimony, we're even more doubtful because that description 
typically would have had some evidence behind and it would have required a massive incredibly thorough cleanup to have avoided a slit throat and splashing blood and large volumes of blood, um, uh, DNA on handcuffs and bindings and other things. It really would have been a, a, a surprisingly well done cleanup. All right. So three things uh, I want you to consider uh, in addition to everything else we've talked about regarding the trailer and Teresa, uh, Teresa Halbach's presence inside the trailer that we didn't really talk about a whole lot. So uh, so consider, in addition to everything we talked about, these things, uh, that uh, allegedly Stephen Avery rented a carpet cleaner and may have used a, a carpet cleaner to clean that entire bedroom, changed out all the linens uh, in uh, from that bed, that he all that also uh, during the investigation that uh, dogs that would track the scent of Teresa Halbach hit on you know, uh, Teresa possibly entering that trailer and also the handcuffs with the fuzzy pink cloth things on the handcuffs. Oh, don't act like you don't know. <laughs> That, that Stephen allegedly got rid of the fuzzy pink cloth part of the handcuffs that may have, you know, collected DNA and, and that those were destroyed in some way prior to the police collecting them and testing them. So any of those three things, those alter uh, or further inform your opinion that there's, there's not really evidence that Teresa entered into the trailer. No, uh, be, because all three of those things are things that we simply can't opine about that, you know, if there's case information that shows this to be true, then we can consider the, again, the proposition of having used a steam vac or cleaner to clean the scene versus having not used a steam cleaner to clean the scene and so on and so forth. Um, I will throw out that Stephen Avery rented some sort of UV uh, device and um, used UV to basically autoclave the entire room and kill all the DNA that's in there and degraded it all. Stephen Avery used bleach to clean everything out of the room and and uh, wash it so thoroughly there are no traces of ble bleach behind to react with aluminol. And there are so many possible scenarios we... We can't really consider those. We only have the the lack of evidence. And the lack of evidence suggests that either it didn't happen that way in that place, or the cleanup was so extreme that there's just simply no evidence of it. We don't know. But if you're going to say that it happened this way, there should be evidence to support it. And that's what's missing from the case. There are so many possible scenarios that could be out there. We only know the ones that the evidence supports. And and we say it could have happened. That's the best anyone can do. And and I think that's what we explored in the episode was prosecution typically doubles down and says, this is what happened. Now, it's one scenario that the evidence supports. But in, in almost every criminal case, unless you have it on videotape, I mean, you're always theorizing how it happened exactly. It's whether or not there's evidence to support that. Very well said. Uh, very well said. 
But I'm going to point to you. I think something that you may have never really seen before and may change your entire view of this entire case. Oh, boy. Yep. I can't wait. Prove me wrong, okay. man. I'm sharing with you on my screen uh, through Google Hangouts an image of the key found in Stephen Avery's trailer. Yes, I'm looking at it. It looks like a Toyota RAV4 key. Which you are absolutely familiar with because this is the car that you also owned, which makes you... Owned. 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 <laughs> owned, yes, yes. But owned. Which, this makes you preeminently qualified to opine upon. Do you notice anything strange or different or suspicious about this image of this key that was found in Stephen Avery's trailer? I wish I could say I did, but I do not. And and frankly, when I did say the RAV4 key, it also looked like my early Toyota Celica key and my Toyota <laughs> Corolla key and my Toyota Camry key. It looks like a Toyota key. I, I, I think what you're saying is that uh, any sponsorship that Toyota might throw our way for the Dublin podcast <laughs> would be appreciated because <laughs> we are both loyal customers of the Toyota brand. I have had several, many Toyotas <laughs> in my life. Hey, my uh, my Sienna is up to like 265,000 miles. I've been putting some miles on that sucker. Wow, I haven't seen a Sienna in a long time. All right, here. Let's compare that to this Toyota key. Look at the Ooh. wear, the, the the discoloration on this Toyota key that's been used every day. Aha. I see. So wouldn't you say that the difference well, between these two keys means yeah, that let's, let's describe this. So we're looking at a picture of a Toyota key that has been so rubbed down because the, whoever had this key, and this is someone, some you, some person who has a very worn down Toyota key that's rubbed like they're an obsessive compulsive, and they they rub this like they're lucky, <laughs> lucky rabbit's foot charm, and there's discoloration on the end of the key and so forth. And so the theory here is that if you use the this key a lot and had it on you all the time it would be worn down and discolored significantly and since the key found in in Stephen avery's trailer is not worn at all it's pristine in fact then this means that the key was in fact planted by the law enforcement uh investigators at the scene all right, well, that's just bizarre logic because no one's disputing <laughs> that it's not her key. So I don't see how the wornness or the non-wornness has anything to do with it. And unless they're what they're trying to, I don't get, no, I have no idea. I don't see how wornness has anything to do with planting the key. They're, they're completely separate issue. The only thing that wornness would come into play is whether or not this was her key or not. No one is disputing it was her key. It's whether or not people planted it and then planted his DNA on the key. That doesn't have anything to do with warmness at all. I Well, all right. I mean, clearly, the key not being worn means it's never been used before. And if it's never been used before, it means that they made a copy from the, uh, uh, the, the Toyota plant just down the road in Detroit, 
where I believe you grew up, Glenn. Is that I correct? See. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. I, see. I see. I see. And uh, then they got uh, Stephen's DNA onto it, planted it in his trailer. I see. You see how all the pieces are falling together here. Okay, so yes, the idea is they got a brand new key, and and that's, and then put. Okay, all right, um, all right. <laughs> well, I guess. Hey, man, that's a theory. Okay, okay, there you go. There, I, it's there very suspicious. I, I'm just saying, it's very suspicious. You know, I have to say though, and I've said in some previous episodes. This is why it frustrates me to read or get involved in the JFK case because at some point you just everyone looks past the evidence and there these conspiracy people are just so crazy with well this had to happen and this had to happen and all these crazy things other than just let's just look at the evidence and just treat this like any other case what will we conclude but of course, once it takes on a life of its own and these yeah. other possibilities of dubious actors being involved, then everything under the sun gets considered as opposed to what we might call the garden variety interpretation of this evidence. Yeah, yeah. More of a reasonable question for you now, Glenn. What are your thoughts on whether or not the body could have been burned in the burn pit? as suggested by prosecutors versus a barrel or some other method that would have concentrated the heat more. Uh, we didn't you really know, talk about this in other episodes, but I wanted to, to ask your question, your opinion on that. All right. So, so far of the things tonight, this is one of the more interesting questions where I, I, I don't know. I mean, that they raised that in the, the, the second season, the possibility that that wasn't the original burn site. And my answer to that is, I don't know. I mean, the, it, what's bizarre about this is that the fragments were found in different places and that uh, there are different parts of this and that and there. Look, I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, what if, for example, let, let's say the murderer, whoever that may be, I believe Stephen Avery, but let's say murderer. the murderer starts off trying to burn the body in a pit and finds out it's actually quite difficult to do. And decides, you know what, maybe I will move this. Uh, I can't stay out here for hours and hours and hours stoking these fires. Uh, it does take a long time to burn a body completely and so thoroughly. So you know, what if uh, the parts got moved to uh, a different location later, a burn barrel or in a different location where more privacy was felt so they could take more time to stoke fires and burn. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it is bizarre that there are fragments in different places. That is strange. And that's not usually the case when you have a single body that's missing. And the, the I mean, I'm not proposing that these are from multiple bodies, but there's no reason to think that, so I, I won't go there. So assuming one body, it is strange that there are these different sites. That's, um, I don't know, what, what do you think, Eric? No, I, I, the burn pit and that whole part of this case is something I, I really want to learn more about because the the expert that Kathleen Zellner brought in on, on this aspect of the case seemed to suggest that under the circumstances suggested by the prosecution that the body couldn't have been consumed in in that scenario, in that timeline. But then again, 
I'm not sure if it's one of those things where just the prosecution's initial suggestion of what happened was incorrect or whether it was just impossible for the body to be consumed at all under those circumstances. I don't know. The, the burning part of it is something I, I very much like to learn more about. Yeah, I, I know where you're coming from. You know, I, I've uh, been involved in a case here in Minnesota loosely when I joined the, the state agency. I think I mentioned this before, a very famous uh, homicide of a young woman here who was burned. And so I learned probably the most about burning. Oh, you know, we didn't talk about this in the episode. We talked about it on Reddit. Uh, and so my experience with burning bodies here is kind of limited to a handful of cases. But uh, most of the time they have been fire pits. But I, I have had other cases where burn barrels are, you know, are also a possibility. And in fact, when I was in Canada last week, we heard about a case up there where the bodies were burned in burn barrels and the heat generated was very high and it takes significantly less time to actually burn a body in a barrel. That was discussed in the, the Canadian case. And there's a forensic anthropologist who I know and respect. His name's Scott Fairgreave has also, uh, in, in that case and some other cases talked about burning bodies and disposal of bodies and bone chips and what you get down to at the end. So, you know, I, I'm with you. I'd like to know more about it. I, I can't rule out that body wasn't first started in one place, moved to another. Uh, I could see a, a burn pit for a while and then moving to a, you know, that, that's a lot of extra work. I don't under, I don't know or understand the circumstances why. I, I, I'm not sure how, I, other than like you said, Eric, it just, it's one more thing where the prosecution's explanation of the event may not have been perfect or exact or, uh, or even accurate, but it doesn't change the guilt aspect in that this person committed a lot of different acts and that, that doesn't change that for me. Then let me propose a, another little thing that may, ha may, uh, influence you. Are you familiar with the Sakiki letter? I am not. All right. So in the week or so after uh, Teresa went missing, uh, the United States Postal Service uh, got a uh, found a letter and reported it to uh, the Manitowoc County. Let me bring it up here for you. All right, so while you're bringing that up, hey, I've got a little sh shout out to a sponsor of ours. Yeah, I'd like to thank Idemia for sponsoring this episode of the Double Loop Podcast. Idemia, the global leader in augmented identity. Their technology has combined digital and cloud expertise to bring efficiency and next generation user experiences to their customers. Idemia has launched a new product called Case Aphis. It's a portable latent print examination tool supported by the full power of Idemia's flagship MBIS matching algorithms. It's a totally standalone system. doesn't need to connect to your main Aphis or your internet, no security, firewall, sieges, permission, etc. It's basically Aphis in a laptop so you can work it on your cases. Uh, case APHIS enables latent print examiners to solve complex and difficult cases faster by searching latent prints collected at a crime scene against known prints on a case-by-case -case basis. Essentially, you search your latent prints against specific exemplars from a crime scene in any format. They can be non-standard, they can be footprint, uh, footprints, sole prints, joints, tips, whatever it is. Search your latents against these, and ultimately it will improve your efficiency and reduce 
in theory, erroneous exclusions. So learn more about Idemia and Case APHIS by contacting us at info.usa at Idemia, that's I-D-E-M-I-A dot com. Solve your cases faster today with Case APHIS. And just as a side note, teaching a class on this in January in the Anaheim yes. area. Yeah, in fact, actually, we might be nearly full on that class. So if oh, cool. you were thinking about joining, we might um, might have either topped out and might even have to look at offering another one here if the response is so strong. But yeah, we might have... We might be getting very close to getting full. So if you're interested in that, better better get registered today and, and uh, we will try to accommodate as many as possible or, or open a second class. And when, when is that class, Clyde? Uh, January 9th through the 11th in 2019. All right. All right. 2019. Man. It's I know. the future already. It's, it's, every time we roll over to another year, I think it's it, it's just so much the future. Getting back to this image, I, I have it up on, on my screen here, shared with you. You mm. can say it's a letter. It says, uh, Manitowoc Sheriff Avery. Well, no, hold on. It says Manitowoc Schiff. <laughs> well, that, that's part of the idea of this letter is that maybe the person who wrote it isn't the best at spelling things. Aha. Uh-huh. I think I know where we're going with this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So Manitowoc, Manitowoc, and then Sheriff. Surprisingly, yeah. they got Manitowoc correct. So I'm going to guess that it is, in fact, a local citizen. And then Avery, yes. Yeah, okay, yeah. It okay. could be Avery, yeah. And then body was burnt up in something, something smelter. Yeah. 3 a.m. Friday morn. Sakiki. Friday was misspelled. <laughs> for, for, sorry, Friday. Friday morn. Yeah, F R I D Y. Yeah, Friday. Oh, you know, it actually sounds like a Wisconsinite speaking. Friday. <laughs> it, Friday or Saturday. We'll go down to the, the, the potluck. And then signed or just labeled or something, at the bottom right hand corner, Sakiki. S I K I K E Y. Hmm. Okay. I okay. don't know what the is. So, isn't so a little background of where this letter came from. So, uh, this letter uh, was sent uh, through the mail. Uh, the U.S. Uh, Postal Service found this letter not in an envelope, but just folded in thirds with no postage attached, uh, basically addressed to uh, you know, Manitowoc uh, County Sheriff's Office with the reference of Avery. And uh, let me see if I can bring up here the report on this. You know what that? You know what that was? I, I know what that is. That other word. Go back. I figure out that other word before smelter. Uh, this is this is me trying to think like uh, someone who cannot spell. Okay, go ahead. Aluminum. Ah, yes, aluminum. Aluminum smelter. It, it, it is exact. They have spelled out exactly what they. There's a game called Mad Gab, where um, <laughs> have you played this game where they're just sounds, but when you say them out loud, they yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's this is my Mad Gab skill coming out. There you go. Uh, so uh, here is a report from uh, the, the the county saying you know, how the letter was received. 
you know, this basic letter was just put into a mailbox without any postage, without even an envelope, with the hope that it would be related back to this Avery case. Okay. So, question now here for you. Isn't this letter proof that the body of Teresa Halbach was burned in the smelter <laughs> where Scott Taddick worked? And that the name signed at the bottom, Sakiki, is proof that it was actually Scott Taddock who did this because his nickname while working at the smelter was Skinny, and Sakiki is the misspelled version of Skinny. Wow. Uh, okay. Uh, well, uh, no. Next <laughs> Next question. Uh, Wow. Uh, but, I mean, it's, it's funny. Okay. So everything else in here, whether it's sheriff or aluminum, it's interesting that Sakiki is associated with Skinny. I don't I don't think that's right. I don't think that's what they're going with there. I don't know what Sakiki means, but Skinny is not what they're trying to spell. If they're okay. trying to spell anything, maybe it, it, I mean, it could be an actual name, but... That is interesting. I mean, it's, actually, it's not that interesting. It's funny <laughs> that someone would think that. Again, here we are, JFK in in 2019. Crazy theories. Crazy theories. I'm telling you, Glenn, I have been down the rabbit's hole. I have engaged in conversation with these groups. Whew, I, I've been down uh, the, the rabbit hole and brought back these questions for you. Uh, so, so that, and for our, the rest of our listeners, so that, uh, the rest of you wouldn't have to go down to these dark places that I've discovered in the, in the midst of the interwebs. But, uh, these are the kind of question and, oh boy, it's about to get worse. I'm sorry, Glenn, but it's, we, we haven't passed the, the crazy zone yet. We're still in the somewhat logical Whoa. Uh, realms uh, of questions that I'm going to pose to you. Uh, so I, I hope that you can handle it um, as we as we delve deeper and deeper into the into all the possibilities that uh, that that could be considered in this case. I wonder if Sakiki is short for and misspelled Scion Kia Key. And that oh. Teresa's body was actually moved first in a Toyota Scion, then moved to a Kia, then ultimately end up in a Toyota RAV4. That that actually tells the position of the body based on the pinging from the cell phones. It is a key to what actually happened to her body. How about that? Well, I I I would be with you, but I think that the Y at the end of Sakiki is actually an X. Uh, if you just type in the word Sakiki into the internet, S-I-K-I-K-E-Y, you'll be, quickly be able to find this photo. And I think the Y at the end is actually an X. So that completely changes the entire context of that uh, word. Damn it. No, I thought I had it. All right. Well, Sorry, what are you going to do? Glenn. Oh, 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 but, 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 no, that's it. That, that is it. Okay, Kex? It, um, no, see, that's the problem. Okay. It's actually a message. S-I something, K-I something, killed by the ex-boyfriend. Oh. Ex, the yes. ex-boyfriend. Ryan Hillegas, the ex-boyfriend. Seek C, into is... killing in... 
the no no c c s i is spanish for yes yes kick which is um that's that's like a message service like an internet uh you know way to send text messages right kick yeah yeah okay and ex-boyfriend ex-boyfriend that's it you are you're good glenn you are really good at this thanks yeah seek into kick ex-boyfriend ex yeah that's it it's uh it's a mess it's it's a roadmap to the real killer okay well, okay. So speaking speaking of real killer, yes. If you head on over to the uh, TikTok Manitowoc subreddit, <laughs> or to Google, or to any of the uh, the investigations into the innocence of Stephen Avery, you will very quickly discover questions into this. Glenn, Doctor Langenberg. Do you, in fact, believe that Teresa Hobbach is, in fact, still alive and, in fact, her family was paid off by the government in order to bring murder charges against Stephen Avery when, in fact, there is no credible evidence that she has ever been presented, that, that she was, in fact, deceased? There's been no body. All of the DNA evidence has been faked. She's not dead. She's living with $5 million in some remote location. Wow. That is horribly offensive to the family members. I hope, I mean, I'm sure at some point they've been exposed to that, but I, I really feel, feel bad about that. That is horrible, terrible. Uh, that's so ludicrous. I mean, just trying to bring it back to the seriousness of it. I mean, it is, I mean, they, they have skull fragments with her DNA. I think, or I think they were skull fragments. They might have bone fragments, but they definitely have fragments with her DNA. So unless she's walking around with missing portions of her bones that were burned, although I suppose that person will just assume that. They planted Teresa's DNA on yeah, the bone. All the DNA evidence was faked because every all the DNA examiners uh, cannot be trusted because they're all in the, in the employ of the government. All part of the system. Yep they're they're attached to the matrix. Yeah, that's uh, that's sad. And it's sad that someone is that dumb to think that. And I'm sorry, that person is just dumb. I'm sorry that they get a vote in in elections and that they get a say in democracy. That's sad. Okay. I, I, I agree. I agree. It is completely insane to jump to this crazy assumption that Teresa Halbach is still alive somewhere and has been paid off to live a secret life away from her family and all of her friends. But... Glenn. I hope that person doesn't is not able to procreate. I, I swear to God, I, I, I hope they're struck with infertility. Oh my gosh! Well, uh, so yes, she is deceased. She has passed away. But don't you believe that it is entirely likely that all of the police officers in Wisconsin, the prosecutors, including Ken Kratz, Mister Sweaty, as he's being referred to. By, that is actually uh, pretty funny. <laughs> so, yeah. oh, true. The judge in this case and Bobby Dassey and Ryan Hilligas are all part of a network of social of sexual deviants that work together to keep each other out of trouble. Oh Find my god. Women like Teresa Hallback to assault, murder, and sexually violate aren't they the real criminals in this case? You were not joking about the insanity. Thank you for protecting me up to this point, but 
pl- please go back to protecting me. Oh my god. Uh wow. Oh, okay. Yes, every it, it, police officer and Ken Kratz and all the the judge and Bobby Dassey and Ryan Hillegas, all of them are connected obviously through this case to assault women because you you saw even you saw the text messages that Ken Kratz sent and why he was removed as a prosecutor with the government uh, that's clearly evidence and Bobby Dassey's uh, search of I mean you called them deviant searches uh, of sexual material on the on the inter- on internet you know what I, and I think on the episode I said yeah it's not your father's porn I've already got several comments from people saying that they enjoyed that comment it was just <laughs> a, Apparently, that stood out in the episode. <laughs> you never know what you're going to say that's going to stand out, do you? Never know. You never know. So one last question for you, Glenn, before we, we kind of wrap all this up. To, uh, wrap all this up, Are you, Dr. Langenberg, in fact, being paid by a secret public relations firm, paid for by the coffers of Manitowoc County and the state of Wisconsin to propagate propaganda in opposition to Kathleen Zellner's uh, statements regarding the innocence of Stephen Avery and, in fact, being paid to sell your, quote-unquote, expertise onto the guilt of Stephen Avery and Brandon Dassey. That's an actual question to me or us? Uh, Just a a statement regarding our, our allegiance and why we're saying what we're saying. All right, so so that's tor- that was towards us. That wasn't like me specifically. That was us, right? Right. Okay. Uh, damn, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish I was going to get my, my reparations check. Uh, no, I, I I'm not. I I look forward to a fat check in the mail. <laughs> but no, no, sadly, no. You're you're not a shill of the of the machine. <laughs> I probably am and don't know it in some ways, but uh, no, not not uh, knowingly. <laughs> uh, wow, so, wow. Hey. Well, of of course, but you know, again, it reminds me so much of JFK. Is that ultimately when logic breaks down, you simply just accuse the other party of being. Well, you're just part of the conspiracy. Then you're just you can't see. Your eyes aren't open. You ain't woke. You don't know what's going on. You're part of the machine. And that is ultimately the final defense in, I don't have any real logic here, so I will simply accuse you of being part of the problem. And that that's it. And that's, well, that's what stupid people do when they don't have a good argument. Yeah, I, I, I have probably engaged way more than is healthy for uh, 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 someone in, in my position to engage in. But I, I keep remaining interested in how far they'll go. So, uh, it's it's like a train wreck. The morbid curiosity you exactly. have to see the train collide. So most recently, it's been about the wax. Um, we we talked about this in the past. The the wax on the bullet that was found in the garage. Whether or not that wax is from the firearms examiner that places the bullet in sticky wax to hold it in place under a comparison microscope or whether that wax is in fact chapstick taken from Teresa Halbach's uh, purse in order to plant her DNA on that bullet fragment. I've I've tried multiple times to engage in this question of is it at least possible 
according to the report issued by uh, by uh, Chris Palinek, that not even you, but but that Chris Palinek at least considers it a possibility that that waxy substance originated from the firearms examination and not from chapstick. Because he's a microscopy expert, of course he suggested that because he knows how microscopy should be done, comparison microscopy. And it's, it's, I mean, I, what was their response? The response I've been getting have been no. From his not, report, he states possible. that the wax was in, on, and under the wood, meaning that uh, that uh, it, it absolutely was not from this uh, this firearms examination, even though his report also says that it may be from the firearms examination. He just needs further <laughs> okay. testing to to confirm that. Huh. Interesting. What was it actually under wood fragments? Is that part of the report? Uh, his report said uh, that the the wax and the wood and the paint were in on and I'd have to look again to see the the exact wording of how that was phrased. All blended together. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. The way wax can get into different crevices and say, okay, all right, fine, all right, right, very good. I, I'm still very interested in this idea of the paint and the wood because it truly does open up a, a possibility about what this bullet would have passed through. And and I, I do recognize that it could suggest that, in fact, this bullet did in some way strike or hit wooden surface with paint on and so forth. I mean, I, I, th- I think it's very interesting evidence. doesn't, as we discussed, change anything for me, but it does suggest maybe in the manner in which or the description of which you know we think that this bullet was associated with passing through her skull i i I think it it opens up a whole new way of looking at what happened to this bullet absolutely and and that's one thing I, i kept trying to say is i totally agree with you this evidence from the palinex from from that microscopy definitely suggests that it didn't that this bullet didn't pass through her skull. Even the paint may not have necessarily been from painted wood, but from paint falling onto the bullet fragment after it, it struck some sort of wooden surface to have it embedded. The, the, the phrasing there suggests maybe it wasn't just paint that was on the surface of the wood, but paint that fell upon the bullet fragment at some later time. Uh, interesting. I mean, again, seems a bit unlikely, but interesting. I mean, it, it can't 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 exclude unless there's some way for him to determine paint applied by force versus paint applied um, through through gravity. You know, dropping on it. Absolutely. But as for the wax, when his report specifically states that it may be from the yeah. firearms examination. To jump and, to no 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 the wax is from the chapstick, and and it's impossible to have come from that. That well again that's 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 what happens when you argue with stupid people. I assume you did not call them stupid because you are <laughs> too kind and too much of a gentleman and keeping it professional. But that's just, that's just oh dumb. I I may have strayed outside of the gentlemanly realm, but I I did try to Canadian to, anger. <laughs> how how dare you, sir? I, I did. I, I honestly did try to answer their questions. But the funny thing is, 
there are probably a few people, a few people in that thread who you may have at least convinced that you are neutral in this and you don't have a stake in it and you're really truly just considering things from the evidence standpoint. So you never know. You might have actually pulled a couple of people who are on the fringe anyway and checking it out. But yeah, I mean, you'll never convince those fanatic, fanatical slash stupid people. No, no, and and there was there there was like I had mentioned in the previous episode how I had been banned from that uh, that subreddit. There was another uh, commenter that was being very reasonable and and asking my opinion on things and even throwing in the hey I'm, I I hope I'm not being too forward in asking this but I do have a question about this and I was I was honestly replying to him and and kind of lost the ability to fully respond to some of his questions because I had been banned in the media middle of that conversation. We are highlighting very much a minority of the comments posted to us partially for entertainment, <laughs> uh, partially for, uh, you know, it makes a more interesting discussion, but also, you know, towards the beginning of the episode, we were, we were you know, highlighting more serious questions. Uh, yeah. I, I kind of got silly towards the end here. Uh, but still, you know, honest questions that are being proposed in relation to this case. Well, and, and you do highlight why this case is so controversial because you do have people on the fringes with these crazy theories that will never look at the evidence from from uh, a, a neutral perspective. And, and either either way. Well, exactly. One way or the and, other. And, and uh, I, I did try to throw in some of the more outlandish comments from both sides as well. Granted, most of the more outlandish side came from the pro-Stephen Avery, pro-innocent side. But there were also fairly crazy questions and comments and positions from the pro-Stephen Avery guilt side uh, as well. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I, I know I know I know what you're saying. I I, I do I I, will, I do want to say that the the Reddit thing was was actually really fun to do and for the most part we had very respectful people asking us questions and the ask me, ask me anything. And I found at questions. the end some really good thankful people who were attending, you know, it's a really thank you for your expertise. It's really nice to talk to a forensic expert. It doesn't really have a stake in this. There were a couple of those and I, I thought that was was really nice and very generous of them. And in fact I learned a couple of things too in that. And and there was one user, I uh, I can't think of the their their tag or I'd give them a shout out right now. But there's one person who it's like uh what is it, W O T O W something. I can't Wada yeah, Wada Tua two two or something like that. What yeah, Wat Two Two. Uh he had pointed out something the first time around that we were wrong about was that uh, Brendan Dassey was still in jail because this is before the second season. We were unaware because our last episode dealing with Brendan Dassey had said that the conviction is overturned, so he will be released now, but of course he never was. So he alerted us to that error. And then the other error he alerted me to specifically was you and I discussed how we thought that the withholding of the discs from yes. the prosecution could lead, in fact, to a Brady violation. And a Brady violation is actually where we thought the case would get overturned. And my fear is if this case does get overturned on anything, that if Kathleen Zellner represents Stephen Avery, she will get a reasonable doubt, non-conviction. She will, she will get an acquittal. 
I mean, I, I, I really believe that she knows how to muddy the waters and she is such a good attorney that she, she will get that. She will get the reasonable doubt she, she will need in defending her client. Right, right. Anyway, back, like, uh, OJ. Yeah, right, right, right. Back to the discs. So we have made the comment that, yeah, I mean, it, even though in the, the episode, the, the series, they show a letter from the, uh, investigator says, we have these discs. If you want a copy of them, you're welcome to them. But they basically don't have anything of forensic significance. But here's a quick summary. You know, they have these basic searches and porn, et cetera, but nothing of forensic significance. Yeah, I mean, there were, there were t- these two users, Watt, Watt 2 and Super Pickle, who clearly had done their homework and really knew the case better than us when it came to reading all the documents, which, you know, we never purported to. I mean, we were going to just look at the forensic evidence. But they knew all these other elements, and they showed us a letter quite clearly and distinctly coming from prosecution listing what was there. And basically that, in fact, they had turned everything over. They had images of the disks that were turned over to the defense. And so the the actual disks had been turned over to the defense. There were images of them. It was very clear that all that had been turned over. And these were, when you know, whenever you seize a, a computer and do a forensics analysis, you do this ISO image of the disk. You make a copy, right. an image of the disk. So they had turned over all of that to the defense, whether or not defense looked at it and 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 maybe this is one of Kathleen's issues is that that should have been looked at more by defense or defense expert but again you know we handled that before i i thought they did the a good job with what they had the um buting jerry buting and um dean strang but there was stuff there that was not looked at that could have been introduced but it all was turned over so i agree with um what what two and super pickle this should not be a Brady violation. It was provided. Whether or not defense did anything with it, not prosecution's issue. It was all turned over as appropriate under under what we would call Brady laws. During the the documentary, uh, it's definitely a question, uh, again, from you and I, having been through court proceedings before, when that argument was raised, I, I think both of us were like, whoa, oh, uh, the, the way, thing. yeah, yeah, the way Zellner describes it in a documentary, which is cut for a documentary, but it's not, it's not the whole story. It is her version of the truth, which is not the, the reality here. But I mean, of all the things that she raised, this was this was one of the elements that made us go, "Oh, yeah. okay, this is a possible thing." When when all the other things were just like, eh, yeah. "That's not a thing. That's that's not a thing either." Right. You and I know no. from experience that Brady violations get cases turned over sometimes, and that they Absolutely. can be big, big issues if they can show something, especially like this, that could have been really beneficial to the defense, but was withheld from them. But it wasn't. So we retract that statement. So, yeah, now that we saw that it it seems to have been completely turned over and available to the defense, then it's not a Brady violation, which kind of eliminates that that whole aspect. And, and again, what we were talking about wasn't wasn't a question of guilt. It was a law, a procedural kind of yes. issue. Right. Which my uh, fear was would open the case to a retrial, which my fear right. was she could introduce enough now to make reasonable doubt. But good. I'm kind of kind of glad it doesn't go that way. 
All right. So, Glenn, uh, last thing here before we wrap up. Um, I'm not sure you you were in Canada, but but were you paying attention to the tweets that were coming out last week? Uh, There was one that caught my attention uh, about the day planner. But other than that, no. Okay. Well, what about the day planner that caught your attention? Well, one of the tweets was an explanation for the day planner that okay. su- suggested that her timing and position – in fact, you even talked about, Eric, that this whole idea that she had to be exactly here because of where her cell phone tower was pinging. What this suggested was, in fact, that no, she had um, received some information you know, the night before and that some of these things had come they, – they showed the phone log and such – and the, what that might have meant is that she easily could have been at the house, left the day planner there, and then gone out on the road. But, you know, I, I looked at the, what the, the user had sent. It wasn't really clear to me, so I'm trusting a little bit their interpretation of this. But it seemed like that this had already been settled, that there really was, in fact, a window of opportunity for her to be at her place and leave the planner there. Okay. Well, uh, uh, there was a little bit more... Uh, that came out last week. I, I know you were up in Canada, but me and Superfan Becca that helps us out with the Twitter tweeting. <laughs> I feel so old sometimes, Glenn. I, I really do. We do need a shout out to, to Becca. She does a great job of that. She stuff. really she keeps does. Keeps up with that. Yeah. We, um, thank, thank you, Becca. You are you are great. Kathleen Zellner came out with a series of tweets last week. Uh, we, we even, Becca and I even tweeted at her a couple of questions that didn't get responded to, but anyway, I mean, there were probably a couple hundred tweets that went at her, so, you know, that doesn't really mean anything. We weren't really expecting a response, uh, but there was some new information that came out uh, that I want to run past you. Um, I'm assuming you, you, you weren't, you weren't, you were teaching a class, you weren't really following along live as they were coming out. That is correct, sir. And waiting for my, my Stephen Avery payoff check. <laughs> Both of those things were happening at the same time. Okay. So, a little timeline here. She spelled it out numerically for us. Number one, on Halloween, Scott Taddock visited Bobby at the Avery Salvage Yard around noon. Okay. Okay. Number two, Teresa called the Daisy Landline for directions, and their suspect, not Stephen Avery, but their alternative suspect contacted her back with directions to the Dassey residence. Number three, uh, Teresa arrived at the Avery Salvage Yard around 2.30 on Halloween. Only Bobby and Stephen saw her at that point. Uh, After completing the photo assignment, she left, turned west on Highway 147 around 2.38, and the true killer followed her. Stephen, Mm -hmm. at this time, was in his trailer. Now, I am going to stop you here because isn't the true killer, according to Kathleen Zellner, Bobby Dassey, aided by his stepfather? Yes. Okay. All right. Just making sure. Uh, Number four, the suspect, the true killer, uh, gets Teresa to pull over. She opens her rear cargo uh, door uh, to get her camera out, but was knocked to the ground and struck with some sort of object. Uh, You know, that's actually, that's interesting. Pull back for a second. Yes. That's actually interesting. And why would the, the rear door be open if the Stuart James, you know, blood spat? That, that's kind of interesting. That that fits. Again, having a RAV4, 
you throw stuff in the back all the time and has that weird little door thing that opens up to the right. Well, that, okay. All right. That's, all right. That, okay. there, there's a human element to what would, why would you have opened the back door? All right. But keep going. I'm sure this is all proof, but keep going. Uh, number five, uh, Teresa is put into the rear cargo area of the RAV4 and driven back to the Avery salvage yard. All right. Now I'm going to stop you. So she was just brutally beat, beaten by what, a hammer or other object? Sure, a rock or something. I mean, well, this would have had to have been fairly impromptu if it's Bobby Dassey. It's not like he, he knew she was showing up and had plastic and duct tape and restraints and a hammer waiting by the door. So if, I mean, I'm just following this logic through, if... Well, this is, this is when he gets her to pull over on the side of the road on the back highway. Yeah, you're right. But was he expecting her so that he had plastic and all these other things? In other words, if you just beat someone in the head with a hammer that caused that much bloodshed and blood spatter, there should be a ton of bleeding out blood in the back of the RAV4. Unless, of course, he had plastic or something to wrap the body in. There should have been blood everywhere in the back because she would be actively bleeding as she's dying. I mean, I'm just kind of following that through this logic that unless you were very prepared for this and had everything ready to go, which it sounds like it was very impromptu, he saw her in a moment decide to chase her. So that doesn't quite fit with the scenario of... I'm just going to stop you by the side of the road, murder you, throw your body in the back. Then where is all the blood from gravity and pooling that would occur from a head wound that would have caused that much blood spatter on the back of the door? You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, but I mean there is a a, a contact stain of of blood from hair in the back of that RAV4. No, no, no. I'm talking about lots of bleeding. There should have been lots of bleeding and pooling while you're driving around a body basically dying from head from this head wound that would have been multiple hits to the head. And of course, doesn't explain the exit wound in the skull fragments. But okay, right, right, right. So, uh, so now the, the RAV4 is back at the, uh, the Avery salvage yard, number six. Her RAV4 is spotted now relieving the Avery salvage yard with an unknown driver at 345. Okay. And is then spotted at the old dam west of Michicot on Halloween. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Three witnesses see the RAV4 on the 4th. So one to four days later, uh, they see it there, uh, 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 west of this old dam of Michicot on the fourth of November, and then it was gone. Here's the big thing that you may you may have missed. Invest recent investigation shows that the battery that was in Teresa's Rav Four died, and that the battery actually in the Rav Four now isn't the one that would have been replaced in a RAV4. So they had to grab a different battery, stick it in the RAV4, because the actual RAV4 battery died, so in order to get it going again to then relieve the Avery salvage yard, this other RAV4, sorry, this other battery that didn't belong in RAV4 had to have been installed to start it up to leave the property. Why not just jumpstart the vehicle? I mean, if these are people who are mechanics, why why would you why would you need to replace the battery? Uh, the battery was so dead that it couldn't take a charge. I, I don't you know how, understand. 
I don't think I understand. If you're if you run a salvage yard, you don't jump start batteries. You just grab another replace battery them. and you replace one battery with another so that it just goes. Okay. All right. <laughs> I live in Minnesota and deal with dead batteries all the time in winter, in actual winter. Yes. Uh, a dead battery in the summer that will not take a charge has to be a really bad battery. And then, and, then that's, the, and that's the summer. This was the fall. Well, that's the thing. In Arizona, we deal with dead batteries all the time because they get burnt out by the summer. And yes... When a battery gets died, you know, dead so much that it doesn't take a charge. It's pretty dead battery. But you jump it, and then it goes just fine because a car runs on the alternator slash generator, depending on how old it is. When the alternator is going, the battery isn't part of the circuit. So as long as your alternator is functioning at an efficiency level, right? Uh, Okay, well that's just effing stupid. Okay, all right. (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right. Um, burn barrel. Uh, Teresa's body was burned in a burn barrel. Uh, the Dassey burn barrel had human bones, but over 60% of the bones and 31 teeth were missing. Hence, the witness sent in the letter saying that there was a horrible odor near the grav- of something burning near the gravel pit on Halloween night. And horrible as we- odor. And uh, as we know... The garage was never luminol or DNA tested, but a deer was hung in the Dassey garage on the 4th. But on also on the 4th, the Sakiki note came in showing that the body was burned at the smelter, the aluminum smelter, as you pointed out, on the 4th at 3 a.m. Uh, Tadic worked that night shift that night, and Sakiki... It's just a misspelling of Scott Daddick's nickname, which is Skinny. Uh, her Skin, electronic... sk- skinny X. Skinny X. Skinny X, yes, of course. Uh, her electronics were not burned in Stevens' burn barrel, but they were burned in the Dassey burn barrel. Somebody, our real killer, knew that Stevens' finger rebled on the 3rd of November because that person noticed it. Uh, that person had access to Steven's trailer, removed the blood, but only the real killer knew that the blood in the sink was Steven's and not Teresa's, which rules out the police as having been the real killer. So the real killer then plants the blood in the RAV4 on the 3rd slash 4th, puts Teresa's uh, phone in the burn barrel. In conclusion, the real killer is the person who had access and opportunity to plant Stephen Avery's fresh blood in Teresa's car and all of the other evidence as well. The real killer wasn't the police, but had to have been somebody else who was intimately involved in the rest of this scenario. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Scott Taddock. Huh. So I will agree with part of that. Uh, there's a statement in there that makes a lot of sense. The real killer had access and opportunity to all of this. That would be Stephen Avery. Stephen Avery had access to all these things, and he had the opportunity, and the evidence fits that model as opposed to a crazy scenario that really requires disconnecting my battery in my brain and uh, allowing me to just jump to these crazy scenarios, again, as opposed to Occam's Razor, which is... Or this other explanation that makes sense and we've seen in plenty of other cases and that would fit easily 
of this evidence? One of my big things that I keep going back to in these forums is, okay, let's assume that all of this evidence isn't to be trusted. All the evidence against Stephen Avery is not to be trusted. Okay? Follow along with me here. Yep. If it's all not to be trusted, haven't we learned a lesson about not trusting all this evidence so as not to accuse Bobby Dassey and Scott Taddock of murder (laughs) on extremely flimsy and frankly nonsensical evidence? You know, I I think we said something along those lines when we first started that if you flip the entire script and we're attempting to charge not Stephen Avery, but Bobby Dassey and Scott Taddock with this murder based on this actual evidence, and Kathleen Zellner was representing either of them as defense attorneys, you had all this point towards Stephen Avery, she would do the exact opposite. She would say, and she would be screaming, are you insane? You have all this evidence pointing to some other individual. Why are we trying to convict these people on this crazy theory as opposed to the most simple explanation? So again, you pointed this out from day one. This is self-motivation. This is self grandeurization this is self-promotion <laughs> this is everything that you pointed out and and then i also and, and believe and truly believe that it's her you know duty as a zealous defense attorney to represent her client but she's asking us it it, it, it ventures into the point where she's asking us to believe fantastical scenarios and disconnect logic and at some point like you, you said, it's hard to believe that she could actually believe this. Someone that intelligent yeah. could actually truly believe this. It's hard to accept that. It, it really is. It, it, I actually don't believe that she fully believes everything that she's saying. I, yeah. I, I just don't. She, she seems too intelligent to actually believe some of these things that she's proposing. Right. Or, or see that there's enough. But, and again, she, she made it clear in the episode. She doesn't have to have enough to convict either one of them or prove it was one of them. She simply has to have enough to raise the specter and point the finger at someone else away from her client. That's all she has to do, and she's attempting to do that. It's just asking us to disconnect our logic. All right, Glenn. Well, it, it's been— We're done. Been, We're done with this damn series, aren't we? This is it. <laughs> no more. It's been four more episodes and uh, and and multiple different theories. Um, I I think we're ready to move on to other stuff. Oh, I am. I am way ready to move on. <laughs> and but it's funny. I was really looking forward to it at the outset, but probably through episode three, like some listeners, I, it just it's it, <laughs> it just made me, I guess, angry on some level that people could believe such craziness with such fervor fervor is a good that's a good word man that is a really good word to describe what's going on and and again i will say maybe more than one more on one side than the other but on definitely on both sides to some extent there is a fervor that you're just like what if if nothing else can you acknowledge that the other side has a good point here that's difficult for your side to address, uh, that your side has other maybe more promising avenues of inquiry to work down than, than this specific. Nope. Okay. Okay. You're going to stick, you're going to go full out on every single, okay. On every single point. <sighs> okay. Okay. 
what else do you? I mean, what? How else can you argue against? Yeah, belief uh, and, uh, against and, uh, zealot, zealots. Yes, and that poor, poor Dassey mom that has to now have her the remaining members of her family accused of this. Oh my god! Oh my god! I mean, just oh, what what a what a nightmare there too. This this whole case is just such a such a mess. From from beginning to end, yeah. All right, Glenn. We'll 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 close things out here. Uh, um, thank you very much to our, our all of our new listeners that have joined us through this case. Well, it, it's been frustrating uh, to encounter people that are just unwilling to budge on even the smallest thing. It, it definitely has been an interesting case to talk about. Uh, the the forensics in this case definitely have been interesting and and. Agreed. Especially season two has raised a lot of new questions, and you know we've talked quite a bit about all that. But for all of those new listeners, very much welcome. And if this is the way you got into our little podcast, uh, definitely welcome. And and hope you still enjoy it as we move back <laughs> into other things, maybe even more fingerprint related. Uh, or, or related to uh, other cases. To, but yeah, it's definitely time to, to move back into our, our regular topics. Well said, Eric. And that's a, that's a great transition to this. We're putting a bow on this and moving on. Yes, yes. A big, big, we big have nice real bow. forensic things to discuss now. So uh, we've talked about it a few times now, but even earlier in this episode, you mentioned you had that uh, new class uh, coming out here in Anaheim. Uh, anything else to talk about to uh, to our listeners? Yeah, go to ronsmithandassociates.com. Got a couple of classes coming up, uh, obviously the one in January with the new technology class that will involve KSAFIS as well as uh, uh, statistical models and various kinds of software for examination of latent prints and documentation of latent prints. And then classes in April for exclusions, sufficiency, ACEV, and we're going to be adding more throughout the year too. So run, go to... Ron Smith and Associates, all one word, ronsmithandassociates.com. And my new classes are coming out here at rayforensics.com, April 8th through the 10th for Exclusionology, 11th and 12th for Gyro in Photoshop, both in Hollywood, Florida. So head to rayforensics.com for more information on that. All right, the podcast here. uh, Definitely encourage all listeners to to support us on patreon.com. If you just search or even go to patreon.com slash podcast or even search Podcast and the word Patreon, you should be able to find us. Uh, you know, it's it's basically just us. You know, we're not, um, you know, we, we've definitely got sponsors through uh, Idemia, but uh, the main bulk of, uh, of what we do, you know, for the past five years have just been us uh, deciding what we want to put out information to the uh, latent print community and to people interested in forensics and any support you can send our way for the hosting of the podcast, our websites, you know, anything like that. Topics, uh, topics you know, or cases or things as well. Suggestions. We definitely consider them. Absolutely. Uh, especially consider them if they come from patrons. You can send those to eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. Uh, even if you just want to support us, you know, with new equipment, you know, all, all sorts of things, uh, th- this does take a commitment from Glenn and I to to put out. And 
if this is entertaining or at least uh, interesting or valuable to you at all, we definitely do appreciate any support that you can send our way. Even just a quarter an episode, one-fourth of one American dollar for every episode that comes out. So uh, every Thursday or so is when new episodes uh, will come out. If you aren't in a position to support us through Patreon, you can also support us by spreading the word, suggesting to other coworkers or other people interested in forensics that we put out this podcast and that we may have a perspective interesting to those listeners. You can suggest it to them and spread the word that way uh, or even giving us reviews or ratings on uh, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or on iTunes. And I think that's a new thing we, we should uh, consider is reading out some of those reviews uh, each week on this podcast uh, if they come in. And and don't forget uh, Twitter as well. That's at Double Loop Pod. Occasional tweets. We try to keep up with that as well as some of the, the back and forth and interesting topics, papers, and themes that come up from time to time. Absolutely. Uh, we, we definitely have some interesting things to throw out there uh, on, on the Twitter as well. And if you uh, ha- see some opportunity, see some uh, aspect of the, du- of the podcast that you want to be a super fan and help us out with, uh, like we said, we already have Becca helping us out on Twitter. But if you see some other aspect of collating data or uh, getting involved getting involved in, in any way you know contact us and say hey i think i can help you guys out with this aspect or this aspect sharing cases are we definitely if, if, interested in in hearing from you and hearing how you might be able to help us out and we'd love to see various kinds of cases or images or things that we could do part of the premium content as well that we could take a look at and share share things if they're if we're able to so uh, remember, uh, the content here is the opinions of Glenn and myself and not necessarily those of any agency that we work for. With that, thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Bye.